I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people's been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome back to Australian Golf Passport. I'm Scott Warren and I'm joined as always by Matthew Mollica. G'day, Matty. Hi, Scott. Mate, I'm really looking forward to this week's topic uh, is New South Wales Golf Club. It's a golf course and golf club that's very close to my heart. So looking forward to getting into that into that chat about one of my favourite places. But first, there's a few things from the news of the week this week, uh, that really interesting stuff related to golf courses in Australia. And the first, Maddie, is some chat around the host course for the next time the President's Cup comes to Australia. Yeah, 2028 is the next time that the tournament visits our shores. And earlier in the year, we were aware that Kingston Heath and Royal Melbourne and Peninsula Kingswood were on a short list to host. Uh, since we recorded our last episode, the Peninsula Kingswood members have been informed that their club's bid has not been successful and that it's basically down to either Kingston Heath or Royal Melbourne. There are a couple of little rumblings on the President's Cup coverage that Kingston Heath might be across the line. And I think as of this time, if you go onto Wikipedia, it lists Kingston Heath as the 2028 venue for the President's Cup. But there's not been an official announcement as yet. I think they're scheduled to make that in the coming days. So it'll be interesting to see where that tournament goes. Royal Melbourne's hosted three times, 1998, 2011, and of course, most recently, 2019. Kingston Heath's had the World Cup in times past. And of course, Tigers visit to play the Australian Masters. Yeah, in 2009, when it all started to come undone for him. Yeah. So they, and they dealt with big crowds that week. They dealt with them quite well. But I think the President's Cup build-out might be a little bit bigger than what was on the ground for that tournament 13 years ago. So I'm, I'm not sure if Kingston Heath will miss out on that basis or if they get it and, and make a great go of it, certainly the, the course would be a great venue for that tournament. It's hard to it's hard to see that there's a bad, a bad outcome if they choose either of those courses to host. But the main takeaway I had from watching the President's Cup last weekend was just that the one thing they could do to immediately make it a much better tournament is just have it at Royal Melbourne every single time because it seems like that's when it's been the most competitive, the most interesting it's allowed the best players to show off their shot making. I know that's a massive homer call from an Australian, but just put it at Royal Melbourne every time or alternate between Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath. That'll do. I reckon if there's been more of them at Royal Melbourne, we would have won more than the solitary trophy, whatever it was, 24 years ago. I think we'd have, we'd have at least chalked up another victory. Absolutely. Um, but talking about Kingston Heath, some listeners will know that Kingston Heath has a little project nearing completion at the moment, and that's the development of a short course on the eastern side of the club's property. Uh, people who've played Kingston Heath will be familiar with the 12th hole that runs from north to south down the left side of the course. And there's been this swathe of land beyond the boundary fence there that has been used for car parking and a bit of a, uh, a buffer between the course and the rest of the community in times past. And that's going to be home to a nine-hole par three course designed and built by uh, OCM. And that's progressing really, really well. Some people will have seen one or two shots on social media uh, where grass is growing over that course, much the same as it's growing at Seven Mile Beach at the moment. 
And it looks like that little short course is slated to open early next year. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. I actually got caught early in the process of them building that by how good digital renderings are these days. I thought I'd missed the jump on a heap of construction. I was like, oh God, it's finished. It looks incredible. And then I was like, oh no, hang on. That's that's not real. But now it is real. And I saw some pictures this week and just thought it looks as good as you might have hoped. And what an awesome little place to fall around if you're a if you're a Kingston Heath member and get an even better short game. Yeah, if you were to head out there with two wedges and a putter, uh, or go out there for a loop after lunch or late in the day, take kids there if you didn't want to play the front six or didn't want to go for a long time on the big course, it'll be a brilliant addition. Yeah, and so. it's just, yet again, we've talked previously episodes about the fact that Kingston Heath is a club that just seems to get things right. And this is a, a great example of, you know, they've gone very swiftly from a member vote to getting the work done and, you know, the firm that they engage doesn't really swing and miss. So... They've certainly not swung and missed from what I've seen in the pictures of this. All um, right, Matty, main event. Yeah, we're going to swap roles a little bit. We're going to do things in mirror image of what we did for Royal Melbourne West in an earlier episode where I basically tee it up for you and you have a swing, given yeah. that New South Wales is near and dear to your heart, as you said, and you're intimately familiar with the course. I'm going to sit back much like our listeners and just learn a lot from you tonight, Scott. So I'll do my best. Did you want to start with a description of the site on which New South Wales sits. Yeah, it's it's a really special piece of land. It's on a headland about 20 kilometres southeast of the Sydney CBD uh, on a headland of um, a body of water called Botany Bay. So we've got the Pacific Ocean down one side of the course and then the mouth of Botany Bay and Botany Bay itself wrapping around. So really exposed out on on a, on a spit there and some really wild land, some big rolling, some big rolling dunes that, you know, must be 60 feet high. The course rolls across them largely and and tackles those dunes as part of the holes. It's not a course where you play through dune valleys and along dune ridges. It's basically a course that combines the land that you might see in the west of Ireland with the views that you get on the Monterey Peninsula and the climate of San Diego. It's a lot of the best things about a lot of different places all rolled into one. And I, at the risk of you know, that being me overblowing it as a homer, I've got a quote here that I grabbed out of the, the club book, which is a really great book from Alistair McKenzie from his diary when he made his 1926 trip. And he wrote, at Sydney, I made an entirely new course for the New South Wales Golf Club at a place called La Perouse. This is a sand dune peninsula which overlooks Botany Bay and presents, I think, more spectacular views than any other place I know, with the possible exception of the new Cypress Point golf course I'm doing on the Del Monte Peninsula in California. So that's someone who had seen the world of golf, built a lot of the good golf at that time, and I think that's a fair description. And we'll probably get get to this, but, you know, New South Wales from people who are critical of it maybe gets accused of being a bit of a dumb blonde. Uh, but certainly it's an incredible site for golf, beautiful views external to the property and some incredible land that you don't see too often in golf. When you're driving through that gate and up that little road through the scrub and then you get to that car park site and the clubhouse, do you do you still feel a sense of exhilaration or excitement like you would have on your early trips there? 
Absolutely. And so, so to, to describe that drive, and probably I should have mentioned in, in my initial answer, that the course is built in the middle of a national park, uh, which is incredibly rare. It wasn't a national park when the course was founded. And you drive for probably two or three minutes up a, a road that's too narrow to pass another car without leaving the bitumen. And you kind of emerge up the top of the hill and you've got the course off to your left and you look out over Botany Bay and Port Botany to your right. And it is a really special arrival. And I think one of the things that members of, of leading clubs can get guilty of, Matty, is you get kind of a bit blasé and you take things for granted and you hear blokes whinging about, you know, the greens are too slow or these minute things. I still, every time I drive up that driveway, I feel just this incredible gratitude that I get to drive up that driveway. Now, I've driven up it once in the last 12 weeks at this point, so <laughs> I'd like to drive up it a bit more often. But um, I can still remember really clearly, I first played the course when I was about 13, 14 years old in what used to be called the Shell Week of Golf. Um, the Jack Newton Junior Golf Foundation in New South Wales would put on five days of golf at really good clubs for a really modest fee for juniors to go and play. And there was always one course that was the real the real standout each year and probably the first or second year I played in that it was New South Wales and I lived about an hour and three quarters northwest before all the motorways were built and came down and played in it and was just kind of shaken by how incredible it was and how special and then probably six months nine months later um, my my dad had a business contact who had a corporate membership and and my dad hated going to that kind of stuff so he'd always take me with him and I'd come ostensibly to caddy, but my clubs were always in the boot and someone always did in front. And so I'd get to play golf with dad. So I played there that day. And it was one of those days when New South Wales is just at its best and the wind is, you know, just the right kind of strength to make it interesting. And the golden light in the afternoon just feels like heaven. And I remember us driving home from that game of golf. And as I said, it was a long drive home and it had been like I described, like a majestic day of golf, but had this kind of sense of melancholy and I was a 14 year old kid from the country and I just thought like it really sucks that I'll never be able to play golf at it somewhere like that I often think about that because I often think that life takes you to places and gives you opportunities sometimes that you could never have dreamt of or that you had comprehended and just decided weren't going to be for you it's one of the things I love about the game of golf I think it's um it gives you great opportunities to have special, you know, special experiences. And I, I hope that I never take this place for granted because I really do love it. Yeah, I, I don't think you will, <laughs> knowing you. I, um, and, and knowing that place, it's, it's such an uplifting place to visit. And I think that any repeat visit at a New South Wales golf club would say the same thing. They'd, they'd, they'd smell the sea air, they'd traverse those big ridges that you described a moment ago they'd cherish their times around that course i'm sure and for a first-time visitor too i think it does a great job of of a gradual reveal of how special you know some of the views and some of the land are you know you come as i said you come into the car park and you get a glimpse of the ocean and you get a look at botany bay you know you tee off you're largely through the dunes the third green you kind of emerge up looking north over St. Michael's Golf Club, the coast and Randwick Golf Club. It's this beautiful long view up the cliffs. You disappear back into the dunes for a hole or so. And then on five, you come over the ridge that you drive up onto and over. 
and there's this 180 degree view of of waves crashing into cliffs of little spits of headland uh of you know surfers and rock fishermen port botany is in botany bay so there'll be tugboats heading out to meet freight liners it's just this incredible you know reveal after a couple of glimpses it just shows it to you and then takes you away from the coast back to the end of the front nine and then for the back nine you come back down and you play along the coast for for three or four holes of just you know incredible life affirming golf it's a great description that 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 shot of five is probably one of the most recognized images of australian golf for our listeners overseas they've seen somewhere on instagram or twitter or in on a forum or a golf book somewhere that view from the top of the rise on five looking down at that green below and cape banks in the distance i had someone tell me that that moment standing on that rise and contemplating the next shot is is worth the trip to sydney alone so yeah just no it's so. you know there are some people who will tell golfers who are visiting that they don't need to come to sydney and i just think if you're flying halfway around the world to see what's special and different about australian golf and you don't walk over the rise on five at New South, you've missed out. True. We'll get back to something on that a little bit later. We mentioned just before we hit record that the club's celebrating its centenary in 19, I'm sorry, in 2028. So the course has a famous origin. You can tell us a little bit about how the course first started and, and how much of that initial design is still present today and, and a little bit about how the course has changed. So this was a golf course that was a greenfield design by Alistair McKenzie when he came here in 1926. So the land at that point, I mentioned that it's National Park now, it was owned by Defence, by the Army at that point, and a group of golfers from Sydney wanted to develop, you know, a great new course and they had been looking for sites and they had a mate who was senior in the Army and so they, they dragged him into their scheme and they said, this land is perfect, but, you know, defence owns it. They won't deal with us, but your ex-army, you've still got all your mates in there. Can you get us this land? So there was, there was deals done to get access to that land in time for Mackenzie's visit. So he came out in 1926 and there was nothing on the land at all. It had been used for some defence training and whatnot, but it was still completely untouched in terms of development. So he provided a design for the course and it opened in 1928. Like many courses that opened in the late 1920s, two things, two things came for them reasonably quickly. One was the Great Depression and the second was in golf, the RNA stopping their ban on steel shafts. Now, for a lot of courses that have been designed for hickory play, kind of overnight, they were far too short. Uh, history obviously repeating this century as well, Maddie, with that. But the course was reasonably obsolete. Mackenzie had designed quite a lot of short fours, uh, which had gone from driving pitch holes to reachable holes. So 1931, Alex Russell, who was Mackenzie's design partner at Royal Melbourne, who we talked a lot about in the RM episode, was up in Sydney to play in the Australian Open and the Australian Amateur. And he was invited out to review the course and provide some, some ideas for, for changes. So it was largely from his recommendations that Eric Appley worked in 1936 and 37 to make change to Mackenzie's course. He made changes that largely strengthened the golf course in terms of making holes longer, 
combining two short holes to make a long hole uh, and really create by and large what we know as the course today uh there was another little issue i guess with golf at la perouse in the 40s because as i mentioned it's in a fairly strategic spot in terms of sydney and botany bay which is home to the port and an important little body of water so during world war ii the army actually took it back um there's there's remnant concrete bunkers built along uh, along the ocean from that time lost the course for four years and when it was handed back it was completely overgrown it hadn't had a lick of maintenance or maintenance for four years so it actually took another two years to get it open for play so its first 20 years were fairly uh action-packed and not necessarily 20 years of of bounty but then from there the course is largely has largely been what it what it was left by Appley in 37. so there is often a lot of conjecture about is this really a Mackenzie golf course you know people We'll get to it. It's it's a bit of a mongrel in terms of greens and bunkers and people touching the course in the last, say, 40 years. But it really is essentially one third holes designed exactly by Mackenzie, one third holes designed brand new by Eric Appley, and one third holes that are a combination of the two. Uh, I think what's pretty significant is that of those six holes, that are a combination of their inputs. Uh, four of them have green sites that Mackenzie chose. So, you know, 11 or 12 of the green sites are where he put them. And Appley's changes to his holes were largely, um, so the third hole, he changed the hole from a straightaway par four to a, a dogleg left. You know, at five and seven, he took angled drives and made those holes straight. At eight, he connected two short par fours to make a par five. Uh, at 15 and 16, there were two short straight par fours, and he basically turned 15 into a dogleg right with the 16th then, you know, essentially spooning it, I guess, back in the other direction to make two longer par fours. So the changes that he made were reasonably modest to a lot of those holes, but I think significant, you know, in what they turned those holes into. What he did do, Eric Capley, was design the four par threes from scratch. So on Mackenzie's course, for those who know the course well, his par threes were the first tee to the second green was was one of the three par threes on the course, which which Alex Russell actually described as one of the one of the greatest par threes he'd played. And there's a photo of it in the club book. It looks like a really nice, almost sand belt esque par three. Um, there was a par three that played from what's now the fifth tee down over the rescue helicopter pad towards the ocean. So a hole pretty similar to today's 11th hole in a bit of a drop shot looking out to the water. And then he had a par three that played essentially from what we know now as the 16th fairway down to where the 15th green is. So again, downhill presents really nicely with a long view of the ocean behind. Certainly three very picturesque holes. We know the first hole was a very good one, but so Appley, in tweaking the course needed to find new par threes. He built all four of them. Notably, people talk about the fact that they are playing to the four directions of the compass, which in a really windy site is quite a noticeable feature as you play them. I think what's often overlooked is he built them all in extremely high wind locations. So the second, the 11th and the 17th are all on the main dune ridge that sits 
in the middle of the site. And then the sixth famously plays from an island back to a green that's on the edge of the edge of the mainland. So really windy holes and certainly in a northerly, you know, they can all be a five iron or more. In a southerly, you know, you can have some wedges and, and short irons in your hand maybe on a couple of them. Yeah, that was probably the most significant thing that Appley did in terms of his influence on the course was building those par threes, um, which it's funny, you know, people will walk off and they'll comment that those are those are great Mackenzie, obvious Mackenzie par threes. And maybe I think the thing that Appley learnt best in in this work he did was to learn, you know, to mimic some of those really bold, brave things that were a kind of hallmark of Mackenzie's course there. Some of his little signature moves with courses he's done elsewhere around the world, Mackenzie would really exploit landforms and try and use them in multiple ways across different holes. And but then through the seventies, probably to the nineties, Maddie, the club, the club let a lot of different people touch the golf course. As it stands, there's four different architects who've got greens on the course. Then on top of that, um, Peter Thompson and Mike Wolveridge had a had a couple of greens that they worked on that have subsequently been worked on by Norman. So there's the 14th green is the only remaining Mackenzie slash Appley green on the course. Then um, Jack Newton's design firm, Newton, Grant and Spencer, they built 11 greens in late 70s, early 80s including the infamous second green, which I'm sure we'll get to a bit later on. Greg Norman, some of these with Bob Harrison and some of them with a um, overseas associate once once Harrison and Harley Cruz and Norman had all parted ways, have done five greens there. And then, of course, Tom Doak and Brian Schneider built a new sixth hole during their short period as the consultants before moving on earlier this year. So... I think that's one of the things that underpins the need for this this renovation that the club's undertaking is that we've got the bones of a really fa- fantastic course with a really great, unique routing, but we've got, in terms of the fine detail of greens and bunkers, there's just a lot of fingerprints over it uh, rather than that cohesive one style, one approach that separates a course like this that's around 50th in the world from the courses that are around about the top 20 in the world. And, you know, Jeff Shackelford kind of said as much when he visited, I think, about a decade ago that ultimately, you know, in a macro sense, this is one of the greatest places in the world that has golf on it. But when you get to the fine detail of the architecture, it's not it's not at the level where it's going to compete to be one of the best. Top 50 and- in the world is still pretty good, but it's certainly not this course's potential. This course is a top 20 top 15, top 20 potential given the site that it's got. I think that's that's the hope with one firm getting a go at all 18, isn't it, that there's consistency across the entire layout. So, yeah, to reiterate, I think what I mentioned in a previous episode is that that is currently slated for the summer after next. So 24, 25, you know, that's going to be really exciting. Obviously, we lose our course for a summer, but I think doing it all in one go and seeing seeing what's produced is is a really exciting thing. Yeah, it will be. Now, you talked a moment ago about the winds and how they can vary and they can also be really strong. You can, you can play with a significant wind from any compass point on any particular day there, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it tends to vary through the year as well. 
we get predominantly northerlies or nor'easters and southerlies. And when you look at when you look at an aerial of the course, most of the holes do set up in some sort of north-south manner. It's not straight up north and south. There's a lot of angles involved, but they predominantly play north-south. So on any given day, you're going to catch 40% of the course downwind, 40% of the course upwind, and then obviously holes like 4, 8, 12, uh, the drive on 16 are more east-west. Now, we don't really get easterlies. We get them occasionally. They tend to be light. What we do get is the winter wind is a really strong westerly, and that's that's a punish of a wind. It basically it hurts you on at least 16 holes, uh, and the two that are downwind are kind of trickier when they're downwind in a westerly. So winter is a really tricky time to play. You're hitting different shots. Uh, you're, you're kind of dealing with a completely different golf course. But by and large, we get nor'easters and southerlies. The nor'easters tend to be quite pleasant winds in the high teens and, you know, the right amount of wind for, for sporty golf. The southerlies in summer can be a real punish. And, and you'll often see that in summer, you know, there's a wait list for the morning tea times and there's there's spots all through the field in the afternoon because that southerly, you know, might roll in at about three o'clock and uh, and when it hits, you you know that it's hit. And that's one of the great fun things I think about golf there is that I grew up playing golf inland out in, in northwestern Sydney and I'd often walk off a green before a par three and I'd be, I'd be pushing my trolley to the tee and I'd pull my seven iron out on the walk because I knew the hole coming up was a seven iron. Was always a seven iron. Uh, you never really know what club you're going to need, the type of shot you're going to have to hit. You know, depending on whether it's a crosswind or a hurting wind, or you know, is the pin back and you can get one to release, or is it tucked behind a bunker and you're going to have to try and flight. All those decisions are always in play, uh, and that's what always makes it an interesting place to go and play. And you're going to have to hit a shot that maybe you haven't had to hit before. I was going to ask you. If- you feel that the course has moulded your game or if it moulds the games of members to a degree because it's an exposed site or because there's a, a premium placed on particular kinds of shots? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I think is disappointing in that a lot of people will come and see it once. Uh, a lot of people who come to rate golf courses will see them once. It probably took me a couple of years from playing it regularly to really feel like I... I understood it and that I'd learnt where is really dead and where you can miss, where there's, you know, visual tricks where something might look like a bad place to be, but it's safe to miss there. One of the things you often hear people say in Sydney, you know, if they play at a different club and they'll come out to New South Wales, they'll they'll say, oh, it's so much fun and I love this and I love that, but I wouldn't want to play it every Saturday. And I used to say that. You know, when I was, I was across, town at, across town at Bonnie Doon, I'd say, oh, it's so much fun, but you wouldn't want to play it every week. And I think in time you learn that it's not as punishing as it can feel like it is when you're first getting to know it. Uh, there's a lot of blind shots on the course that even if you're playing it every four to six months, they're still blind because you don't have that, that learnt knowledge of the lines that are good, bad and indifferent. And... Yeah, when you've played it enough and and you can picture the far side of a blind shot and you know the space you've got to work with, 
it definitely is um it definitely is a more user-friendly golf course than maybe it, its reputation suggests I feel like there's a little more intricacy built into it than many people recognize as well, which is probably a hard thing for an architect to do on a really exposed site. You've, you've got to cater for big winds and there's a number of exposed green sites there, as you said, um, you've got to, you've got to deal with winds from different directions, but they're, there is small scale stuff on greens and around greens and in fairways that, would take a while to recognise, I imagine, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. And and subtleties like, you know, the fifth green is so dwarfed, I guess. Its design is so dwarfed by the landform around it and the views and all of the stuff that really takes your takes your eye, you know, and it's quite a short par five that maybe you'll be coming into with a with an iron or even if you only drive it on top of the dune, you might be coming into it with a hybrid or a, you know, or a longer club, but still one that you can reach the green. But there's there's definite places where unless you're really controlling your ball with a lot of spin, there's a lot of places you can land on that green and it will just take a slow roll off the back left. Um, you know, the seventh, the seventh green is quite a famous one that kind of just cascades down a hillside very naturally. But that that green whether the pin's right or left or forward or back, you want to miss that green in completely different places. It's perhaps not as defined by bunkering and built architecture the way that sandbelt courses are. And I think sometimes a bunkering scheme can explain strategy to a player so they understand it and can see that it's there. A lot of the time with the architecture at New South Wales is it's a bit more pick your poison because on different days, different places are going to be good or bad. Uh, I think that the 13th hole is a really good example of that. Um, for those who don't know it, and again, we'll, we'll post pictures of the holes that we're talking about uh, to help people who may not know the course. But a famous dogleg left downhill par four that kind of unwraps around some thick vegetation to this approach shot that looks down over over the ocean in the distance and there's really there's a speed slot that if you if you knock it down the left hand side you'll get kicked forward if you knock it down the right you know you'll have a longer approach in but you know if you knock it too far down then you've got half a wedge to a green with a massive false front and long's dead it's not where you want to be hitting a half wedge so it's really on the tee deciding okay if it's into the wind today you want to play it down the left because the wind's going to hold it up and you're going to have yeah, a wedge on a tricky day. If it's a downwind day, you might want to hit a four iron up the right and let it roll down to give you the approach in. If the if the pin's cut over on the left, I find I like to drive it down the right so that I have a bit more of a clear go. If the pin's up on the right-hand side with the backstop, then you sort of want to get left. And a lot of the times those sorts of decisions are supported by bunkering that says this side good this side bad you know here's the brave shot here's the coward shot that's not the case uh, at new south wales and i think it's probably one of the things where a middle ground could be and i know this was i know this was tom doak and brian schneider's plan for our course and i i understand that mackenzie and ebert are quite fans of this as well is exposed sand at grade is as a middle ground between bunkering and what we currently have, which I agree is probably not 
ideal is Kucherov. I think that there's that that opportunity to define strategy a little bit more clearly, add another layer of aesthetic beauty to the course and just really, you know, set the golf up a little bit better. But I think, you know, there's some great examples of courses around London that um, Colton Abercrombie did where there's basically not drive hazards and landforms are the drive hazard. I think that's, that's essentially what New South Wales offers because with some of the landforms that we have, I think you very quickly become too much with, with a lot of bunkering and that, that scale of land movement. Yeah, I agree. I think it would, it'd be a bit wrong if you, if you impose this rigid strategic methodology to a course design on that site where every single green had to face the inside of a dog leg, inside of dog legs bunkered and outside's bad, as you said, it, it just I'm sure it'd feel right. Yeah, and it's an interesting contrast to the sandbelt, which again, reasons to travel and play golf and reasons to see different things. But I do think sometimes that colours the criticism that you can get of New South Wales golf course from people who've grown up and maybe exclusively played on the sandbelt. You know, the sandbelt by and large is fairly featureless land, great soil, but not great terrain. And so it was necessary that the built, built architecture be the absolute star of the show. And that places like uh, Metropolitan, Front Nine at Victoria, it's what's built that is incredible about it. I think the contrast to that is at a place like New South Wales, where the land does so much and the setting is so overwhelming that it's almost about a lighter touch with what you build because that's not the main oomph. That's true. Well said. I might move forward to some of the questions that I've got for you. We we spoke in a previous episode about a habit of uh, providing forward course reviews. Would you provide a forward course review for New South Wales? That's a very good question. And I can hit I can hit pause or edit out a long wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm thinking. It's a good question, Maddie. A forward course review for New South Wales. Something along the lines of you'll never forget it. Something along the lines of be brave, swing hard. <laughs> it's a really heroic golf course. Um, don't forget your camera. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> They're good. I might, really have to let, I might have to let it marinate. I'll see if I can think of a better one. Okay. No, I like, I, like, I like all those three. That's good. Uh, do you have a favourite hole on the course? I do. So, so 13 is my favourite hole. Uh, it's probably my favourite hole in golf. I think it's really interesting to play in, in all wins. It's, it's a hole that, depending on the time of year and the wind, I've hit a good drive and had a three-wood in. I've hit a good drive and had 50 yards in. It's got a beautiful green that sits up, a skyline green that Mackenzie, when he was positioning it three and a half kilometres away in the distance is Cape Salander on the far side of Botany Bay. When you drive to the middle of the fairway, the middle of the green lines up with Cape Salander and it's just this beautiful view that can distract you from the shot you've got to hit, which is a really tricky shot. So you're essentially hitting pretty flat to downhill. There's a steep false front on the green that 
If you're short, you'll roll back 25 yards. If you're long, that'll be the last time you ever see your golf ball because it, it drops down into native vegetation pretty quickly. It's a very steep green, so you're always mindful of getting above the hole, uh, particularly, you know, a steep downhill putt in the wind. New South Wales is a course where the wind absolutely does affect putts. So there's a lot of different factors that you're thinking about, and it's really just having to select and hit the right shot for the weather conditions and the pin. It's a, it's a hole that you never just kind of sleepwalk through. You know, there are some holes that you get to the green and you haven't necessarily been focusing. You have to focus absolutely on, um, on every shot you hit there. And it's just, it's one of those moments standing in the fairway that, you know, is just nature, you know, and golf coming together at their, at their finest. Yeah, I absolutely the adore it. The beach is not too far away, is it? You can see other people sort of enjoying themselves on the outskirts of the golf course property, apart from all the delights that the hole provides itself. So Yeah. It's funny, actually, Matty, underneath that green down, so you drive over it on the next tee, is a little beach that's only accessible by walking about 2Ks through the bush. And it's become, in the last few years, really popular with uh, like wannabe Instagram models. So okay. it's funny, often you'll walk off 13 down onto the 14th tee and there'll be someone down like rolling through the shallows of the water and posing up a storm on the beach and there's someone with a massive SLR camera clicking away. And it's just funny. I just find it, I find it amusing in this you know, very natural setting, middle of a national park there's golf up on top of the hill and then down on the beach, there's, there's social media, you know, it's on all its finest. Mm. Something diametrically opposed. Actually, there, um, there's a funny, there's a funny story, Maddie, about a club member who I won't name who playing in the middle of summer uh, on a slow day, got to the sixth hole and it was a stinking hot day and there wasn't much wind and there was two groups on the seventh tee. And he thought, you know what? I'm, I've got time for a dip. And so he stripped off to his undies. He tiptoed down the rocks, had a little swim in the bay. By the time the tee cleared, he walked up, you know, dried himself off with the towel off his bag, got dressed again, finished his round, was invited inside for a chat in the committee room and, um, and had himself a little three-month holiday. Okay. So, you know, the ocean can look inviting and, uh, and maybe a little bit too inviting. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, that, apart from those two things that you've just mentioned, other things that you would draw a visitor's eye to when they come to visit New South Wales and play 18 there, what do you make sure you definitely point out? Well, so if it's a, if it's a British visitor, I will point out that when the first fleet came to Australia in 1788 um, to colonise... Australia. Uh, and I'll just mention at this point that obviously that's going to be something that different people have different views on. And that's not, you know, widely viewed in modern Australia as, you know, a glorious arrival. And I acknowledge that. Uh, but when the, when the boats of the first fleet arrived in Australia, the first place that Cook and his men set foot on Australian land was about 100 metres behind our 18th tee. Uh, they came ashore to get fresh water and actually they spent a few days on the boats thinking that this is where they would set up their settlement and and 
then ultimately Cook, who'd circumnavigated Australia in 1770, he said, I think there's a better bay about, you know, 10 k's north. Let's sail up to that bay and have a look around. And, and if it's what I remember, I think maybe that's where we want to be, not here. Uh, and of course he was right, because what he's referring to is Sydney Harbour, as we know it today. So the rocks, you know, and the foundation of Australia and Sydney's CBD could very easily have been, you know, on the banks there at La Perouse. Uh, so I know English visitors are quite often chuffed to to see that spot because it's quite, you know, a historical connector between Australia and, and Britain. I find that it's a golf course that's so loaded with potentially special moments and features. I try not to tour guide too much and direct people to the things that I think they should notice. I'm always interested by the holes that people are particularly delighted by and the things that they find remarkable. Notably, Maddie, a lot of Australian golfers are quite annoyed and frustrated by our third and 17th holes. And those are two holes that people who've, who've come to play the course who don't know too much about it ahead of time are often a little bit giddy about once they play them. Um, and I think there's probably something about expectation management in that. Uh, but certainly that's, that's something that I find quite interesting in the way that they polarise because, you know, I know people who would come out to New South Wales and, and gladly skip those holes. Yeah, we've got mates who would blow both those holes up in a heartbeat and then we've spoken to people who love the challenge and the, the quirkiness of the third uh, the difficulty of the seventeenth—it's interesting. Yeah, different different people with different views. Yeah, is there is there one hole that you not dread playing, get nervous or apprehensive playing? Always the second. Okay. So the second hole is two hundred yards, a little bit over two hundred yards, and it's to a to a green that the putting surface is is reasonably large but i measured actually today maddie because i suspected we would talk about this green so the section of green on the second at new south wales that a ball will stop rolling on and stay put is about 20 square meters bigger than the seventh green at pebble beach which is famously one of the smallest greens in golf and really only only a reasonable proposition because you're hitting a sand wedge it's yeah about 270 square meters of actual green where your ball will stop onto it new south wales it's probably the worst green in the world top 100 it's it's a hole that even good players will hit to the front of the green chip on take four um it's it's stroke index four so most people are getting a shot you take your four you move on it's a real shame that we've got a few holes like that and it's one of the chief jobs for Mackenzie and Ebert is to take a really nice piece of of you know June Ridge you could happily build something based on a Redan there I know that was Doak's plan you could easily build a hundred different greens that are better than what's there it's a real disappointment that that green by Newton Grant and Spencer has lasted 40 years um, it's had absolutely no right to I think the second hole you mentioned that the third has a lot of detractors. I actually think the worst thing about the third hole is the first and second holes. And what I mean by that is if you played two gentle handshake, reasonable proposition holes and then walked onto the third tee, I think you'd be like, huh, okay, what's this do? That's quirky. All right, where do I hit it? 
I think you would have a completely different mindset for what that asks, that 90 degree dog leg over native, you know, completely blind. But as it is, the golf course starts with a short par four where you really can't hit the fairway if you don't drive it 220 metres over the bunkering. If you're hitting an iron and then a wedge, the ball's going to kick hard right into the cooch rough. You're going to have a wedge to a tiny green where you could get a flyer or you could get, you know, something that comes out soft and rolls back down the massive false front. There's a lot of chance that can go against you at the first and it's a short four and you just feel like you should probably be able to make a par without playing great golf. There's a lot that quote unquote is unfair there. And at the second, you know, it's basically the world's shortest par four because trying to hit it on the green with the hybrid or four iron that you often need to use is just not reasonable. You walk onto the third tee and I think you've just spent half an hour straight out of the gate you know, doing battle with unfairness and then you've got this shot. I think I'll be interested to see because a lot of what makes that drive challenging is the way it is because of the National Park and our inability to cut back or, or change things. If one fairway is is softened and widened and you can hit four iron wedge pretty reasonably and play that hole as you should be able to, walk up onto two and have a long par three that is a reasonable balance of challenge and opportunity to score. You'll roll onto the third team. I think there's a moment of quirk there with that drive that more people might appreciate. I understand now why people walk onto that green, uh, sorry, onto that tee and just feel like, God damn, when is this going to, you know, and even now after, after playing the course hundreds of times, you know, I don't draw deep breath until I'm in the third fairway. If I'm in the third fairway and my card's not absolutely ruined, then it's go time. Yeah. Yeah. You would feel, okay, I've run through a hail of bullets and I made it through. Yeah. But that's... I've started five, seven plenty of times. Like it just, oh, it just happens. And it's, it's a damn shame that it also happens. You know, your first 40 minutes on the course is, is encountering those shots. Uh, and it's, it's something that I think has just got slopes get bigger over time from sand splash and whatnot. And, a reasonable little a reasonable little slope or green becomes something pretty unmanageable you know so so slowly that people just come to think oh it's always been that way is there one hole that you have great hopes for in that mckenzie and ebit plan one thing that you want to see them do apart from apart from what you've just described on the second hole is yeah i think one of the things that that the course could really benefit from, I think, is in the middle of the property, you've essentially got four, eight, 12, and then 13 playing parallel to each other, more or less. Uh, it's it's a part of the site that is heavier soil, you know, it can get boggy, they've done a lot of work to drain it, but it struggles from a lack of definition, I think. And it's one of the things that I notice when you play, you know, the best courses, how good are the low moments? How good are the weakest parts of the property? And I think one of the things that could easily be done through that part of the course is some of the sandy waste type areas that we that we have being extended through those holes, both to define the holes from each other, but also to create a bit more strategy and alternate approaches off the tee, say at the eighth, where 
you know, the eighth is a par five where you drive and then hit blind over a dune and it really gets interesting at the approach shot. I think there's some work that can be done through that section to make the holes separate a bit more and then also to create that interest in playing, say, the eighth, uh, you know, at 13 there where the course disappears from maintain golf course into native there's a great opportunity for some sandy waste on that corner of that dogleg hole that you know creates the visual but also just adds to the strategic and that's something that you know Mackenzie and Ebert have introduced quite well at Royal St Ports uh, and has been a feature of the work they've done at Turnbury so I think there's good reason you know not just that the club thinks it'd be good and it was in the dope plan I think absolutely it's the the type of land that I I expect they'll walk over the hill onto the fourth tee and immediately see that potential. If a golfer travels to Sydney and they can only play one round, it's at New South Wales, isn't it? Yeah, without a question. Yeah. Without a question. I mean, there's an argument from some people, you know, for the lakes, and I really enjoy the lakes. I think it's a course to consider when you're in town. What I would say is, for someone who's got no reciprocal or you know members guest approach to either club, New South Wales isn't any dearer, maybe cheaper than the likes of Royal Sydney, the Lakes, and the Australian, which might be the other options that that jump out to them. Worth noting for for listeners who are in New South Wales, who who want to play the course, we talked during the Royal Melbourne episode about the fact that. It's interstate and overseas visitors who can access that. So New South Wales has three days a week where there's tea times for anyone who's prepared to pay a green fee to come and play. And so actually before I before I was a member there, Maddie, my dad and I are born on the same day. And so from when I was about 16 or 17, we would buy each other a round of golf at New South Wales each year for our birthday and we'd go out and have a game. Um, so certainly... If you're in Sydney or you're elsewhere in New South Wales and you want to go out and play it, it's absolutely available. Uh, I think the last time I paid that fee before I joined was about $220. I think it's maybe higher twos or to three now, but certainly in the realm of of world-class golf, that's run, don't walk sort of territory. And it's just a, you know, you pick the right time of year, you get out there and, and take a squillion photos, hit some golf shots that you've never hit before. Unlike a lot of the Sandbelt, Matty, we haven't bulldozed our historic clubhouse and built a Qantas lounge. So I always love when I've got the luxury of hanging around after golf and going upstairs. We've got just some little quirk in the clubhouse, like the bell and the clock from the ship that shipwrecked on Cape Banks, the SS Minmi. Uh, just some some history there some great old photos and trophies, uh, mementos of tournaments that have been held through the years. Um, just a really a really nice place to go and play golf and be around around golf. Yeah, it definitely is. I'd For a lot of years before having kids, I would go up to Sydney on the weekend of the city to surf. So I'd do that fun run on the Sunday morning, but... I'd travel up with friends and we'd do three or four things on a three-day weekend. And and one of one of those things that was a constant was a game at New South Wales. And I think we we trained for the run through a Melbourne winter, but I think the thing that we most look forward to was the visit to New South Wales. 
um, much more so than the 14k fun run down to Bondi on the Sunday morning. Um, and particularly the time in the clubhouse, everything about the visit to that site, as we said at the outset of the episode, the lap of the course, the time in the clubhouse afterwards, staring down at people attempting to sink birdie putts on 18 was great sport. Yeah. It's and a, there's just an absolute, spot. absolute solitude in being in the middle of a national park. You know, 20 minutes out of a global city, you're in the middle of a national park. You're going to hear waves and birds much more than you're going to hear other people outside the course. There's planes taking off and landing, but on different paths away from the course. You're sort of looking at planes come and go without hearing them too much. It's really just, it's always a day well spent. Yeah, a great escape. We've got a couple of little questions from listeners that we'll move on to. Hacking to 10 Golf had asked for your advice on what is the best way to play the third hole? The third hole is actually, and this is, you know, people will scream BS at their at their phone if they know the hole and hate it. With apologies to Phil Mickelson, it's actually not that hard of a shot. There's the SCG basically, or the outfield at Yankee Stadium, whatever you want to picture of a huge expanse of short grass over the ridge. You just have to believe that it's there. You've got a huge amount of area, you know, Generally, when we when we pull the ball left, we shut the club face down and it goes a bit further. That actually is your friend there. So as someone who pulls the ball myself, I kind of have this freedom of if I do that, I'm just going to have a shorter approach. It's it's definitely a shot that when you play it every week for a few years, you walk through there with four members and everyone just sort of hits their shots and, and gets on with it. It's, it's, is it fair to say that visitors don't know how far left they should go or can go? Absolutely. It's, it's impossible really to believe it. I recall coming up the ninth hole once, which is adjacent to that, and um, two guys who are really good young players in Sydney and have just turned pro, James Grierson and Jeremy Fuchs, they were doing some caddying at New South Wales at the time uh, when they were turning pro, and they were caddying for a group of four visitors from China. And it's fair to say that Jeremy and um, James's Chinese was about as good as the golfer's English. And so they were standing on the third tee, which is up above the ninth. And I was watching them desperately trying to convince them that they needed to hit it, you know, 50 yards left of there's, you know, there's a gap in the native, but it's just a walkway. It, it aims at the eighth grade. It doesn't aim where you want to hit it. And there was about a nine minute protracted, you know, process where they pleaded aiming and thumbs up and pointing in the direction. And, and these poor golfers didn't believe, they thought they were being had. So yeah, you, you can't believe the first 10 times you stand on that tee that you're meant to hit it where you're meant to hit it. And you really do have to believe it before I think you can get a full backswing and a full turn to the shoulders, you know, and keep your head looking at the ball at impact because you just you just can't believe that anything good's going to come of hitting it on the line that that a member will insist that you hit it on. Okay, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, M. Vanners had asked us, "What is the hole that every visitor makes a meal of?" Oh, there's he didn't about. exactly he didn't exactly phrase it that way, but I have to. No, have that's to the vibe of the question. Submit isn't this. It? Submit this as a clean episode of a, of a podcast. So that's what we're going with. I would say more often than not, it's the fifth. Uh, most golfers, if they know the course at all, they know the fifth hole. 
they desperately want to blast one over the dune, have a iron or a wedge into the green, make eagle or birdie. It's not often what happens, uh, and it is it is one that I you feel bad for people. They tell you for four holes how they've just always wanted to play the fifth, and then they stand up and uh, the snap hook one into shoulder high where they're never going to find their golf ball, or they block one towards the seventh and they never find their golf ball. It's certainly one of the things about our golf course, and people criticise Prairie Dunes in Kansas in the US for a similar, that the native is unforgiving. Uh, and I think the challenge for us is to keep the corridors wide enough that that's a reasonable proposition. Five's quite a wide corridor, uh, but I think a lot of golfers just so desperately want to play well on that hole uh, that they're destined not to. Yep. I've been guilty of that, hacking around fourth and fifth shots from the sand that separates five and seven in times past. Okay. I mentioned I mentioned earlier playing with my dad on our birthday each year. My dad's not a good golfer, uh, only plays a few times a year just to spend time with me. Uh, and and he's probably, you know, if he had a handicap, it would be in the 30s. He one day drove it over the hill, hit a three-wood on just short, putted it up and tapped in for birdie, and he said, I quit golf it was the first birdie he'd made in 15 years he said, i quit i'm done with golf and then he looked over at the 16 and he said oh, maybe i'll just play one more hole <laughs> what a great story that's fantastic i can remember would it have been a pga an australian pga that was held at new south wales where pros were hitting driver into a fierce wind and there was no way known they were they were getting to the top of that dune yeah, there's some there's some really great stories of um, when there used to be a, an Australian tour of note. There was some quite well attended tournaments by you know your Andrew Coltarts and Paul Casey's and Stuart Appleby's in Australian PGA's and and there was actually a modified Stableford tour event played there because they considered that playing stroke might be something that that wasn't conducive with getting the field through. So. There was one event that was that was played as Stableford, but there's a great uh, on YouTube, the 09 Australian Open, which is the only Australian Open we've ever hosted. It was won by Adam Scott. Uh, the whole final day is on YouTube, five hours of, of footage. And it's just fascinating to watch these shots that, that we find so difficult uh, and watch the best players encounter them. And in some cases, make an absolute meal. You know, that second green that I mentioned to you, even for the pros in the Australian Open, they used the back tee for hospitality tents. They played them off the forward tee at 165 metres. And on the last day of the tournament, I think the green in regulation percentage was about 23%. Wow. So it is interesting sometimes to see that we're actually not that rubbish at golf. It's just really, really hard. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we got a question from another listener, Wagmi. What is the most challenging wind direction at New South Wales? The winter westerly, no doubt. Yeah. yeah, it sucks. I mean, if it if it's sometimes, if I if I see the weather and it's going to be forty clicks out of the west, you know, maybe that's a day for brunch and go to the gym. In the middle of winter, when it's twelve degrees yeah. and it might rain, I talked about not being not taking it for granted. But on days like that, there's probably some other things I'd rather do with four hours. 
And but you know what? You get out there in those conditions and it's still fun and you hit some shots that you wouldn't believe and, yeah, you you smash some drives 130 metres because they basically go straight up in the air and come back and it's still golf and golf's always good. But if you've got the luxury of choosing a different day to go and play, then perhaps you do. On that same sort of point, uh, Pete and Repeat had asked, what time of year does the course play easiest and toughest? It's interesting because it can really depend on what sort of player you are. If you're really comfortable in the wind, summer, is it's weird in the way the winds work. In summer, we get quite a lot of moderate winds. People, would, people who don't play a lot of golf on the coast would probably think they're strong winds, but they're a couple of clubs, two and a half clubs. If you're comfortable in the wind, that's a great time of year to play golf. You're getting lots of run on the fairways. You know, it tends to be a little bit softer because um, can be quite humid summers in Sydney. So, you know, the course will be firm, but it won't be it won't be trampolining left, right and centre, which, you know, when you've got the bit of land that we've got is not necessarily what you're after. It can be the perfect conditions to play golf, but you're probably going to get two to three clubs of wind every single day. And so for people who don't like wind, you know, again, Matty, March and April, we've talked about. March and April are the months where you can get flags, flags hanging limp, which is very rare. Uh, and then also coming out of summer, course firms up. That can be a great time of year to play. Uh, and it's actually, I felt gratified, Matty, because, you know, just complete gut check in that episode one, I said March, April, that's, you know, that's when the conditions are mint. And then looking through years of, of wind data online today, uh, it was like, oh, there you go. It's actually backed up by, it is the stillest time of year, absolutely. Okay, that's good to know. Well, that's just about cleaned me out for questions. It's about cleaned me out for answers. (laughs) It's a treasure of a layout, and it's one that all Australian golfers should see at some point throughout their time, and you hope that overseas visitors will come and take a lap of it and experience it and take away great memories, whether that's of a of a, of a picture postcard day or a devilish wind that provides some difficulty or something in between. Yeah, probably the greatest the greatest thing I enjoy, Maddie, is taking a first time visitor out for a lap and seeing it through their eyes for the first time all over again. And it's really been the last couple of months, you know, COVID's cleared, travel started, winter's passed in Sydney. I'm starting to get DMs and text messages and emails from people saying, I'm going to be there at the end of November, are you around? And I don't get out as often as I should having a young family, but it's always a great reason to make an excuse to get out and play. Uh, and I just love, I love watching people's faces when they go around the first time. It's um, something I highly recommend everyone do. We hope they can. All right. Thanks so much for speaking so fondly and so informatively and passionately about it, Scott. I, I hope that the listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have and as much Pleasure, as you have sharing your stories and, and, and your knowledge of the course too. Thanks, mate. Have a good one.